We're going to open up together to Ezra chapter 3 this morning. Ezra chapter 3. Went back and forth this week on how much of Ezra 3 uh, was going to deal with and uh, began with Ezra 3, 1 through 6, and then moved to all of chapter 3, and then I did go back to Ezra 3, 1 through 6. So Ezra 3, 1 through 6 will be our text this morning, and we'll finish Ezra uh, 3 uh, the next time that we're together. But Ezra 3, uh, verses 1 through 6, the heading in the ESV Bible is Rebuilding the Altar, and you'll find that on page 459 uh, if you're using a pew Bible. Ezra chapter 3, we'll read verses 1 through 6. I'll invite you now to hear the holy, inspired, and inerrant Word of God read for you. When the seventh month came, and the children of Israel were in the towns, the people gathered as one man to Jerusalem. Then arose Jeshua, the son of Josadak, with his fellow priests, and Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, with his kinsmen, and they built the altar of the God of Israel to offer burnt offerings on it, as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. They set the altar in its place, for fear was on them because of the peoples of the lands, and they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord, burnt offerings morning and evening, and they kept the feast of booths, as it is written, and offered the daily burnt offerings by number, according to the rule as each day required, and after that, the regular burnt offerings, the offerings at the new moon and at all the appointed feasts of the Lord. And the offerings of everyone who made a free will offering to the Lord. From the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord. But the foundation of the temple of the Lord was not yet laid. Thus far, the reading of God's own word. Let's pray together. Lord God, all we need and trust is the deep, deep love of Jesus. And we know, Lord, that the place we encounter the deep, deep love of Jesus, first and foremost, is in and through Your Word. And Lord, the wonder of Your Word is that even in obscure books like Ezra, the love of Jesus is there for us. This morning we ask that You would give us eyes to see it, ears to hear it, and hearts to believe it, for Jesus' sake. Amen. Dear congregation, what is the church's most basic and fundamental calling? What is it that we should give ourselves to and concern ourselves with above all else? The answer to that question is worship. Worship is our most basic and fundamental calling. Worship is the reason that God created us, and it's the reason that God has saved us and brought us back into a relationship with Himself through the Lord Jesus Christ. Worship is the chief end of man. You can see that in the book of Revelation, right, where the redeemed... Worship God forever and ever. That's what we're told. I've always appreciated the quote by John Piper. It's from his book, Let the Nations Be Glad. And he's talking about how many people think, you know, the ultimate goal and purpose of the church is missions. This is what he says. Missions is not the ultimate goal of the church. Worship is. 
Missions exist because worship does not. Does that make sense, right? Worship is the ultimate goal uh, that God has for us. The reason missions exist is because all over the world people aren't worshiping God, and so they need to hear the good news of Jesus Christ so that they precisely become worshipers of God. Worship is the church's most basic and fundamental calling. Worship is the thing God's people are to give themselves to first and foremost before all else. And this truth is illustrated well in our text this morning. In Ezra chapter 1, I'm going to have to move this over. It's too close to me. It's freaking me out. I'm afraid I'm going to bash it. Um, in Ezra chapter 1, we, we see uh, the proclamation of King Cyrus, that the exiles could return to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. And we saw that this proclamation of King Cyrus was a shadow and a type and a preview of the proclamation of the gospel. In Ezra chapter 2, we read about the people who responded to King Cyrus's proclamation and who returned to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. And we saw that these people were a preview and a foretaste, a shadow and a type of the New Testament church, the very people who would respond uh, to the gospel by faith. In Ezra 3 now, we see what the returned exiles give themselves to doing upon returning to the promised land. And the first thing, the first thing they give themselves to doing is worship. It's worship. So our theme this morning is, as the sermon says, the returned exiles worship. And we're going to consider that theme in four thoughts. First, the priority of their worship. Second, the blessing of their worship. Third, the regulation of their worship. And then fourth, the basis of their worship. So first, the priority of their worship. Our text begins with these words. When the seventh month came and the children of Israel were in the towns... The people gathered as one man to Jerusalem. Now, it's supposed that Israel began their journey back to Jerusalem in the spring of the year. Uh, And that would have put, um, that would have been in either the first or second month of the Jewish calendar. So, if we, if we believe that, that Israel began their return to Jerusalem, to the promised land, and in the first or second month of the year, uh, the journey from Babylon back to Jerusalem would have taken about four months, okay? Uh, they didn't have cars or planes, right? It was on foot. So that would have put their return to the promised land in either the fourth or the fifth month of the year. Give the people some time to put their things away and settle in the towns they hadn't been in in nearly 70 years. And it seems then that the first order of business for the returned exiles is to worship God together in Jerusalem, right? So they left Babylon in the first or second month of the year. It was a four-month journey at least. That puts them in the uh, fourth or fifth month of the year, right? They get to Jerusalem and they have all this stuff and, and the leaders say, okay, return to your towns, put your stuff away, Uh, When you get it put away, we'll gather back here in Jerusalem. And that would have been, right, about the seventh month 
of the year. So in Ezra 3.1, we see that the people make worship their first priority. Worship is what they give themselves to doing before and above all else. And that is fitting. That is faithfulness on their part. Psalm 86.9 says, All the nations you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name. Isaiah 43, verse 21, the Lord is speaking. He says, the people whom I formed for myself, that they might declare my praise. That's the purpose of our existence, God says there, that we might declare His praise. John 4, 23, Jesus tells us that the Father is seeking people to worship Him. Worship is our primary calling. You might think, too, of uh, the Israelites in Egypt. Do you remember what God's purpose was in wanting to deliver His people from Egypt? It was so that they might worship Him in the wilderness. You see that in Exodus seven sixteen and 8, verse 1 and other passages, right? So, worship is what God wants from us above all else. And so, the returned exiles rightfully make worship their first priority. Right? They get to the promised land, they put their things away, they come together in the seventh month for worship. Worship is their first priority. Here's the question by way of application. What about you? What about me? Do we make worship our first priority? Right. Let's talk first about worship on Sunday. When you lay out your monthly calendar... What's the first thing that you pencil in? Right? Basketball practice, hockey games, gymnastics competitions, or worship. What is it that you revolve your schedule around? There's something we revolve our schedules around. There is for all of us. What is it that you revolve your schedule around? Is it the gathering of God's people for worship on Sunday, or is it something else? What's your priority? Let's think now about all of life as worship, right? Because both of these things are true. God calls us to worship Him on Sunday, but He calls us also to worship Him every day. When you wake up in the morning, what is your first priority for the day? Is it to make money? Is it to check your email? Is it to read the news? Or is it to glorify God in your life? Is that, first, first, I'm going to glorify God today. What is your first priority for your children? Do you want your, is your first priority for your children that they succeed academically and get a college scholarship because of it? Is your priority for your children that they're popular socially, right, and that all the kids like them and speak highly of them? Is your prop priority for your children that they, you know, they're, they're athletic superstars? Or is your priority for your children that they become worshipers? of God. What is our priority as a church? You know, churches lose their way in this regard. Sometimes churches make being relevant their priority. Sometimes churches make social causes their priority. Sometimes churches make tradition their priority. A pastor friend of mine tells the story of how 
about 15 years ago, he was serving a church as a youth pastor, and the church had a consultant come in, and uh, the consultant's job these people exist. The consultant's job was to help the church, you know, organize, form a mission statement, ultimately become a better and more influential church in their community. And the consultant asked the people on this committee, right, what are we going to do to become that church? What are we going to do to become that church? And the people talked about all the programs that they were going to implement and, and, and the way they were going to serve their communities. And, and really, they just had this list of, of busy work that they were going to perform as a church. And my friend pipes up. He was the youth pastor at the time. He pipes up, and he says, he says you know, I think first and foremost, we should give ourselves to worshiping God faithfully Sunday after Sunday after Sunday as a body. We should give ourselves to the preaching of God's Word, the administration of the sacraments, and the fellowship of believers. And, uh, and this consultant responded to him by saying, well, well of course we're going to do that, but, but what do we really want to do? As if there's better things that they could do. And that upset my friend, and rightly so. That's actually, I think, a big problem with the church today. Interestingly enough, I know where that church is. And that church is currently losing many members to a church next door. Uh, and the church next door has a pastor whom we're familiar with, last name Murray. And they're growing like crazy because what do they give themselves to doing? Worshiping God week in and week out. Right? Worship is our most basic and fundamental calling as the redeemed people of God. Worship is what the exiles give themselves to first and foremost when they return to the land. Do we make worship our priority? Do we make worship our priority? I was convicted this week of my own sin on this point, and especially so in regards to my, my family and my children. Uh, my wife and I love to read the Bible with our children and to sing with our children uh, after dinner. It takes like five minutes, right? That is something we only do when everything else is done. Maybe once a week. My priorities are messed up. My priorities are messed up. That is fundamental. That is basic. Worship is to be our priority. Second, the blessing of their worship. Worship is about God. And in worship, we give glory to God, and we make much of God, and we praise God for who He is and what He's done. Worship is about God. And yet, in worship, there are blessings for God's people. And we see three of them here in our text. The first blessing is unity. Look what we read at the end of verse 1. They gathered as one man in Jerusalem. That's an expression of the people's unity here. As they gather together in Jerusalem for worship, they do so as one man. They do so as a people united in mind and purpose. In worship, God's people experience the blessing of unity. We see this in Psalm 133 as well. Psalm 133 is one of those Songs of Ascent, it's called. It's, it's the psalms that the pilgrims would have sung as they made their way up to Jerusalem for one of the annual festivals or feasts on Israel's calendar. 
How does Psalm 133 begin? It's it's believed that this is a psalm that the pilgrims would have sung when they arrived in Jerusalem, okay? And what does Psalm 133 say? It says, how good and pleasant it is when brothers live together in unity. That's what God's people would sing when they arrived in Jerusalem to worship God. How good and pleasant it is when brothers live together in unity. Unity is a blessing of worship. One of my favorite stories ever uh, is one told by Ligon Duncan, uh, president of Reformed Theological Seminary. I think I've told it to you before, but uh, he was preaching at Capitol Hill Baptist Church in Washington, D.C., and he said while he's preaching, he noticed in the front row uh, two men, and he had apparently met these men earlier or something, but there was two men. Uh, each of them was a staffer uh, in the House of Representatives. One of them was a Republican staffer. The other one was a Democratic staffer. And here those two men are, singing God's praises, listening to the preaching of God's Word. And Duncan would say, like, there's, there's nothing in the world that unites those two men, and yet worship brings them together. Unity is a blessing of worship. A second blessing is peace. Peace. Look what we read, verses 2 and 3. Then arose Jeshua with his fellow priests and Zerubbabel. People's on here. We will see in chapter 4 that the people of the lands are a problem, but it seems here in context that worship has something to do with this fear they had of their neighbors. Maybe worship was their their response to the fear they were experiencing. And certainly, uh, the Bible makes a connection between worship and fear and anxiety, or worship as the cure, I should say, to fear and anxiety. Uh, Philippians 4, we see that. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to all. The Lord is at hand. Don't be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Right? What does the Apostle Paul say there? He says, he says, the peace of God will guard our hearts when? Well, in the context of worship. In the context of rejoicing in the Lord and praying to the Lord. So there is a relationship in Scripture between worship and peace. Worship and anxiety. Perhaps my own experience plays a part here as well. It was interesting to me. uh, It's been interesting to me, I should say, that in my own struggles with fear and anxiety... I have continually found tremendous peace in worship. I felt that this past spring, we're dealing with the adoption. There's so much stress, so much anxiety. There was fear. Uh, but then we would, we would come together with you on Sundays. We would gather for worship, and there was, there was, there was peace. Right? Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Do not be anxious about anything. There's, there's something that works together there. Peace is a blessing of worship. A third blessing here is hope. In verse 4, we're told they kept the feast of booths. Booths. Israel's worship 
was made up of a number of feasts and festivals. There were actually seven of them. We read about them in Leviticus 23 and Numbers 29. The Feast of Booths was one of the three major feasts on Israel's calendar. It was also the last one on Israel's calendar. took place in the seventh month of the year. Uh, It was a harvest festival uh, to rejoice in the bounty that God had provided. And I've heard uh, that it was actually the pilgrims' motivation for celebrating the first Thanksgiving when they arrived uh, in America. Now, one thing that would happen during the Feast of Booths, and this is why it was called the Feast of Booths, is that the people of Israel would dwell in these sort of forts, these huts that they would build out of sticks and palm branches and, uh, you know, the things kids make forts out of. And these forts were called booths. Now, why would they build these forts, these booths out of sticks? Well, they did it to commemorate what God's people lived in uh, in the wilderness uh, between leaving Egypt and entering the promised land. They, they lived in these, these booths, these tents. And what these booths and tents were supposed to remind the people of Israel of ultimately is that this world, this world was not their home. These booths, these tents, these forts made out of sticks, these are things that nomads and wanderers and pilgrims live in. These are not things that that people who have settled down live in. People who have settled down build houses, right? These are the things that pilgrims live in. And so as they would camp out in these booths during the Feast of Booths, they would be reminded that this world is not their home. They would be reminded of what the writer of Hebrews would later say, that here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. And so it is, at least it should be, in worship. When we gather together in worship, we're meant to recognize that this world is not our home. All the suffering and all the heartache, and all the difficulties and stress that we experience, right, it's not final. It's not going to have the last word. It's part of life in this fallen world, but this world is not our home. We seek a city that is to come, so worship brings hope. So, so worship is about God, But as we worship God, there are blessings in store for us by God's grace. Blessings of unity, blessings of peace, blessings of hope. Okay, the Lord is good like that. The Lord is good like that. The the more you make of Him in worship, the more graciously He gives to you in return. Third, the regulation of their worship. When the exiles here gather together as one man in Jerusalem, they do two main things. They do a third thing later. They rebuild the temple. That takes a little longer, uh, uh, but we'll get to that next time. But they do two main things first. Uh, The first thing they do is rebuild the altar and reinstitute the sacrificial system. The second thing they do is observe the Feast of Booths. Let me ask you, why do they do these things? Why is this the form that their worship takes? Is it because these things seem good to them? Is it because, you know, they they have this worship committee that gets together and says, you know what, I 
I think offering sacrifices and observing a festival where we make everyone camp in (laughs) sticks for a week will be kind of fun. Let's do that. Let's worship God that way. Is that why they do that? The answer is no. Right? No. They do these things because God has told them to do these things. Look what we read about the altar and the sacrifices at the end of verse 2. And they built the altar of the God of Israel to offer burnt offerings on it as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. So they offer sacrifices because God told them to offer sacrifices. They offer sacrifices because that was God's prescribed way of worshiping Him. Through Moses, God had made it clear that sacrifices were to be offered for the forgiveness of sins. And so the people offer sacrifices as it is written, as God told them to. The same thing's true about the Feast of Booths, verse 4. And so they kept the Feast of Booths as it is written. All right, the feasts, too, were prescribed by God. And so Israel's worship of God here is simply regulated by the Word of God. They're worshiping God in the way that He's instructed them to worship Him. And again, that leads to a question by way of application. How do we regulate our worship? Do we regulate it according to our whims and our fancies and our imaginations? Or do we regulate worship according to to the Word of God. I uh, have often heard um, people in the circles I sort of run around in, uh, people who are, you know, maybe a bit, oh, what's the nice word, politically correct word? Redneck, is that politically correct? I don't know if that's politically correct or not. But uh, anyway, people who, who, who really get into... Um, Hunting and fishing. Well, we'll say that. That's much nicer. Those aren't all rednecks. They're civilized people, I think, generally. Um, but I've had people in those, those, those circles say to me, you know, Pastor, uh, on Sunday morning, there's no place I worship God better than in a tree stand. You know, Pastor, there's no place I worship God better than out on the lake. Okay, except you're worshiping God as you see fit rather than as he sees fit. Because God has told you to meet with his people on the Lord's day for worship, right? That's an instance of us worshiping God in a way that seems good to us rather than in a way that God has set forth in His Word, right? God's Word is to regulate our worship. We're to worship in spirit and in truth. And what is truth? Jesus says God's Word is truth, right? We're to worship according to God's Word. And so when it comes to our Sunday gatherings, we sing, we pray, we confess our sins, we profess our faith, we celebrate the sacraments, we preach the Word. Why do we do these things? Because these are things which the Lord has set before us in His Word. Now, you might ask, be a good question at this point, okay, fair enough, but why then do we not offer sacrifices Why then do we not celebrate the Feast of Booths and have campouts out in Dave's hayfield? Be fun, wouldn't it, Dave? Take care of that field real good, probably. Well, that leads to our final point this morning, the basis of their worship. One thing that's hard to miss in the worship of Old Testament Israel is the fact that it was very, very bloody. You would not have wanted to be a custodian in the church 
in the life of Old Testament Israel. We'd have to pay John and Bonnet a lot more to be a custodian in the church if we still worshiped like they did uh, back in the Old Testament. Old Testament worship was very, very, very bloody. I think if you were actually there in person, you would have been blown away by the amount of blood, okay? Blood was everywhere. Why? Because of these sacrifices that were offered, right? Offered morning and evening, offered on the new moon and on the Sabbath. Verse 4 talks about how during the Feast of Booths, they offered daily burnt offerings by number according to rule as each day required. Sounds kind of hard to grasp. Uh, But the Feast of Booths was a feast in which an extraordinary amount of sacrifices were offered. Like, Sacrifices to the nth degree, okay? Um, In Numbers 29, we learn that every day of the feast, if there's a good, boys and girls, um, I'll do this quick, you can use Numbers 29, but boys and girls, if you can tell me later how many sacrifices total were offered during the Feast of Booths, we'll give you a prize. Anyways, uh, you can use Numbers 29, but in Numbers 29, we learn that every day of the feast... The priest was to offer two rams, 14 lambs, and one male goat. So every day of the feast, there was 17 sacrifices offered. Besides those 17 sacrifices offered every day of the feast, on the first day of the feast, you were to offer 13 bulls. On the second day of the feast, you were to offer 12 additional bulls. On the third day, 11 bulls. And so on and so forth until you got to the seventh and final day of the feast when you were to offer an additional seven bulls. If you then add the sacrifices from the eighth day, uh, which was the day of rest that marked the end of the feast, there is a pile of dead animals in Jerusalem during the feast of booths. Okay, the feast of booths included an extraordinary amount of sacrifices. During the Feast of Booths, there would be blood everywhere, right? Blood on the altar, blood on the ground beneath the altar, blood on the walls. It looked like my house for crying out loud. I have four boys. There's blood everywhere, okay? Blood everywhere. You would not have missed it. Blood on the high priest. Old Testament worship was bloody. Our worship is not bloody, is it? We do not have blood spattered on the walls. We do not have blood spattered on the pulpit. The preacher doesn't bring out blood out of the font and throw it on you. You've never seen an animal sacrificed. Why not? Well, it's because all of the bloody sacrifices of the Old Testament were meant to point forward to something. And what is that? Well, it's the blood of Jesus which would be shed on the cross for the sins of his people. The writer of Hebrews tells us this, And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can actually never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. So you see, boys and girls, The bloody sacrifices involved in Old Testament worship point forward to what Christ would do in dying on the cross for our sins. Now that Christ has died, now that His blood has been shed, no more sacrifices are needed. No more blood needs to be spilt. 
And so in Old Testament Israel, they'd see the blood everywhere, and that was meant to point them forward by faith to the once-for-all sacrifice of Jesus and to the blood that would be shed on the cross. We look around. We don't see blood anywhere. Why not? What happened? The sacrifice has been offered. The blood has been shed. All right? And so our worship looks different than Old Testament Israel's, and yet the basis of our worship is the same. And the basis of their worship is the basis of our worship. It's the finished work of Christ for the forgiveness of sins. Let me ask you, is your heart full of praise and thanksgiving to God today? Do you find yourself today really, truly worshiping God in your soul? If the answer is no, why not? Could it be that you're trying to worship Him on the basis of something other than the blood of Christ? Could it be that you're trying to worship God on the basis of maybe your spiritual performance this past week? Could it be that you're trying to worship God on the basis of how obedient of a little Christian you were? Hear me clearly, my friend. You will find no reason for worship in yourself. When you look in yourself, you'll only find sin. When you look in yourself, you only find reason to despair in your relationship with God. When you look into yourself, you won't praise God and give thanksgiving to God. You'll say, woe is me, I'm ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I'm in the presence of God Almighty. Maybe you're trying to worship God on the basis of the music this morning. Maybe the music isn't your favorite. Maybe you prefer the praise band and Hillsong, or you prefer the organ and hymns. You didn't get what you want. You didn't get what you prefer, and so your worship has gone cold. There was nothing there for me this morning, you'll go home and say. Could it be that you're trying to worship God on the basis of your circumstances? When life is good and your heart is full of praise and thanksgiving, uh, your worship is sweet. But right now, life is not good, and your week did not go as planned, and your soul is weary and troubled, and so worship is not happening because, frankly, you don't feel like it. Whatever the reason, my friend, understand this. God calls us to worship Him, and the basis for our worship is ever and always the precious blood of Jesus. It's not, your, it's not your spiritual performance throughout the week. It's not the style of music in the worship service. It's not your circumstances. It's not the pastor in the pulpit. No, the basis for our worship is the precious blood of Jesus shed on the cross once and for all for our sins. The blood which reconciles us to God freely. If your heart is cold and indifferent toward God this morning, if your heart is cold and indifferent toward God throughout the week, if your heart is not at all engaged in worship, I invite you to think deeply about the blood that's been shed. Think deeply about the sins 
that have been washed away. Think deeply about the atoning sacrifice that has been offered. Anyone who truly thinks on these things and who truly understands these things will not, cannot remain unmoved. He will not, he cannot remain unaffected. No, he or she will worship God as God created them to do, as God has redeemed them to do. May worship ever and always be our first priority. May we ever and always recognize that worship is our most fundamental and basic calling, and may we give ourselves to it with all we have on Sunday and every day throughout the course of the week. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, you have created us and redeemed us to worship you. Forgive us for being cold and indifferent and half-hearted in our worship. Forgive us for basing our worship on something other than the blood of Jesus. And help us truly to be people who make worship our priority and who worship you in spirit and in truth for the glory of the risen Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Let's stand for the parting blessing. Your congregation, I'm going to give you a parting blessing uh, that I have found great encouragement from this past week. I don't know if it's actually a parting blessing, but it's from 2 Timothy 2, verse 1, and it says this, You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Amen.